All right, good morning, everyone. I am very, very excited and thankful that you chose to come out to church today. You know, every time I watch that bumper video where we see, you know, all those unchanging aspects of God, that alone just really has brought an encouragement to my heart. And uh, it's just been exciting to be able to spend the last part of this summer going through this series talking about God being unchanging. And there's some big changes coming up this week for a lot of you. Your kids, you're kicking them out of the house with one final boot, and they're going back to school, thank goodness. And some of you are grieving that, you know, the next few days are your last opportunities to sleep in and to stay home. Uh, so there are big changes coming, and we're looking forward to this fall and everything that's going to happen. And so we have been in this series titled Unchanging God, and Jesus says something that is such an encouragement to me. I love when he said, long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living and not the dead. And this is amazing because it means that we have a living God, an active God, the same God that spoke with Abraham, that spoke with Isaac, that spoke with Jacob, that spoke with Moses and David and the prophets is the very God that we have right now because he is unchanging. And this is simply an extraordinary thing. We've been working through this Bible timeline where there's all sorts of things that happen throughout the scriptures, but we looked at the creation event and um, sinning and how God promised to send a redeemer. And we looked at Moses bringing the Hebrew people out of slavery or bondage in Egypt. And we looked at King David in the time of the kingdom last week. And today we're going to be looking at the very beginning of the church, which is just an exciting thing to do. And so the whole big idea of this entire series has been this, God has never and will never change. And that really is a comfort to us because it means we have something to put our lives upon, a foundation that's unshakable. And so today we're looking at this, that God is our unchanging helper. And oftentimes we think to ourselves, I really do need help. And we say that God helps us. We throw that around all the time. God will help me do this. God helps here, God helps there. Maybe God will help with my job or God will help with my marriage or God will help with my spouse or God will help with my kids or all these different ways that God, you know, that we say like God helps us and, and this idea of God being a helper is not uncommon, but when we really stop to think, I think it's appropriate to ask this question. What does God helping us mean? When you say God will help you, what do you actually mean behind that? What does that look like? Does it mean he just makes happen whatever your desire is? Well, that doesn't make too much sense because we have a lot of desires that are not great. And so I'm hoping that as we work through this idea of God being an unchanging helper, that you're encouraged to know how to look for God's help in the way that he brings that about. I want to share with you a guy's story that's really extraordinary. His name is Eric Little. Eric Little was born in Tianjin, China. Now, it would now be Tianjin, China, to Scottish missionaries James and Mary. So I don't know if you know a lot about what was going on in uh, the early 1900s in China, but it was a really, really, really tough place to try to be a Christian and to, quite frankly, try to uh, be any sort of good. Uh, it was a really dark place, but that is where Eric Little was born in 1902. 
And he was there on the mission field with his parents for five or six years before they ended up moving back to Scotland where he attended um, school, as most kids do. And the faith of his parents was really impressed upon him in those, um, in those early years of his life. And he became a very avid Jesus follower. Well, as he was in grade school, he realized that he had a really exceptional gift in competing in track and field. He was lightning fast. And so by the time he was out of high school and he was on to university, he had set the British world record that stood for 35 years in the 100-meter dash at 9.7 seconds. By far, this was, the, this was his best event. Of anything else in track and field, this was his best event. Now, he, had, he also ran like a 200 and 400-meter, but the 100-meter was absolutely where he just killed it. And he earned a spot um, on the Olympic team. And he was able in 1924 to go to Paris and to compete in the Olympics in the 100-meter dash. However, when he got the schedule for the Olympic Games with everything that was going to be happening, he saw that the 100-meter dash was scheduled on a Sunday. And he had a deep conviction in his heart that Sunday was meant for rest and for worship. And he went back and forth because he struggled with this. And he had decided by the end of that, he felt that he was really being called by God to set aside this opportunity to run in what it seemed like God had set him up for his whole life to do, which was to run this 100-meter dash in the Olympic Games. He felt that God was saying, I need you to step aside from that opportunity and to honor me in doing that. And so much to the chagrin of Scotland and other individuals who thought that he should be running this because it's not that big of a deal for one Sunday to, you know, participate in something that's not necessarily rest, um, he decided to step away. And instead, he started training as hard as he could for the 400-meter dash. And even though this was not his best event, he poured all of his energy into trying in those last days to get himself ready to run that race because he believed that he was following God and that God would give him all of the help he would need to accomplish this. Well, he was handed a note by his teammate just before he ran the 400-meter dash in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. The note said, in the old book it says, he that honors me, I will honor. And so Eric Little went on not only to win the gold medal in the 400-meter dash, but also to set a world record that would stand for 12 years until the Olympics in Germany, an extraordinary feat that he accomplished. And he said, I have no doubt that this was given to me as help from God, that I, I honored him and said, I'll do whatever you want, and that God has a bigger purpose, and that he will help me to do whatever is his will, whatever is best. And now our scenarios aren't often quite that dramatic, right? We don't often have a literal global platform to be seen that God says, I want you to step away from that and trust me and I'll help you to accomplish whatever else it is that I want you to accomplish. But we do have things in our lives that we know we need help with and sometimes we struggle with what do I do and how do I do it and God, what type of help do you want to give me? And it, you know, the list kind of goes on. And so I ask, you know, what, what do we ask help for? And so here are just a few things that we may frequently find ourselves praying about. Help this food to be blessed, or help me at the doctor's. Help me with this quiz. Help me in my marriage, or help my boss to respect me. 
Help my children to be safe and pure. Help my family to get along. And maybe it looks like this as well. Help me to kill a big buck or help me to sink this putt. I'll tell you this. If you want to sink a putt, don't pray this, okay? I just, I warn you with that. Um, help me to break even or help me to find a good parking space. Help me to get this house I want. Help me to get a good raise or help me find a spouse. All of these different things, we pretty frequently find ourselves asking God for similar things. And what we want to do is to let people think that we ask God for these, for these really good things, to help me to honor you, God, and help me to live a life that is good and help me to follow your purpose. But oftentimes we find ourselves asking God for things that, quite frankly, are not quite so honorable. And so and it, it, it kind of brings about this idea, and Chip Ingram points this out in his series, um, the real God that we went through as a church a few years ago, that God is a cosmic God that may or may not grant our desires. That let me just throw everything up to God, which it's not wrong to ask God for the desires of your heart. But let me just throw it all up there to God and then cross my fingers and maybe God will decide to give it to me or not to. And when we handle prayer that way and asking God for help that way, I just want to let you know that that's a wrong way to seek God's help. That's not how it works. Now, God may give you the desires of your heart, but God is not just up in heaven willy-nilly choosing who to help and who not to help and who to, whose prayer to answer and whose prayer not to answer. But it's easy to slip into the feeling that that's the case. And what we need to do is ask, what does the scripture say about God helping us? And I believe in the scriptures there is a, a really, really important beginning story about exactly what God says he does to help us. And it is found all the way here at the very beginning of the church. And to get us up to the point of the beginning of the church, we have to start last week where we were in the kingdom with David, and we're going to move all the way forward to Jesus. And so David was the second king of Israel. The Lord loved him and said, David, I promise you there's going to be one of your descendants on the throne forever. And so long story short, the kingdom itself is split into two with David's descendants still on the throne in the southern kingdom titled Judah. And they were unfaithful to God. They went in and out of exile because of their unfaithfulness. And we end, at the, we end up at the end of the Old Testament, which is the, the scriptures before Jesus, with the children of Israel, the Hebrew people, disobedient and rebellious, and that's where it cuts off, and we have a 400-year gap. Then all of a sudden, in a, in, a, in a little tiny, terrible little town of Nazareth, an angel appears to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. And that's where we pick up. Rome is currently occupying Israel. The religious leaders of the time were so afraid that um, people would break the law that Moses gave, just like they used to, or kill the prophets of God and rebel, that the religious leaders had built a whole series of rules around the law that Moses gave to be obedient. And the things that they observed, the reason the kingdom of Israel went into exile and was destroyed was because they were breaking the law. And the religious leaders said, there's all these other things that you can't do. And when Jesus came, they felt as though Jesus was breaking that. They said, Jesus, you know, you are definitely not the Messiah. You're actually, um, I don't know, even blasphemous for saying that you yourself are God and you have the ability to forgive sins. And this is how Jesus responds. It's so important. 
Jesus said, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. You see, when Moses gave the law of God to his people Israel, the idea was that they were separated from God because of sin, and the law would temporarily help them to be reconnected to God. But the people were so unfaithful that it was completely broken. And Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law, and I've come to offer salvation itself. And that's why Jesus was here. He came so that you and I could know God, so that you and I could be in a relationship with God, and we could know him now and forever. But there's a really interesting part of salvation that Jesus brought to us that I don't know we all the time give quite as much thought to, and that's that part of this was sending who Jesus said was our helper. Look what Jesus said in John 14. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He says, but the helper, who he says is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Then he says in John 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So there's a big something going on behind the scenes of Jesus's ultimate plan. Because we see that he goes to the cross and he dies on the cross. He was God and yet he was a man. He lived perfectly. He never sinned, and they killed him for it. And he said, now that I've died, I can offer you salvation. And he rose from the dead and said, anybody that believes in me will have eternal life. You'll have me not only now, but forever and forever. And then with his disciples around him, he ascends up into heaven, and he tells them, go and wait for me. And so all of his disciples and his followers, they go and wait in Jerusalem, really with not much of an idea of what's about to happen. And so they're all there in Jerusalem waiting, and then this happens. On the day of Pentecost, which was a Jewish festival where they celebrated the harvest, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Now also know that because it was Pentecost, people from all over the place had flocked to Jerusalem, speaking probably dozens of different languages with lots of different dialects, and the place was a really eclectic um, place to be at that time. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. And when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running. They were bewildered because they heard their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. 
Something new happened, and nobody saw it coming. Out of nowhere, there's this insane event that unfolds where there's a sound of, you know, maybe you think of like a tornado or a hurricane, we don't really know, that is so dramatic that all the people in the area flood to where the disciples were meeting. And they see this amazing event with, they have these these flames or these tongues of fire, as it says, over top of them. And they're speaking and every person hears their own language come out of the mouth of the followers of Jesus who are waiting in Jerusalem. This was new. This had not happened before. And it was the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's important to ask, who is the Spirit? Who showed up here? What was going on? And I'll tell you this, I think this is very, very, very important. And maybe the first thing to understand when it comes to understanding who it was that showed up that day on Pentecost. He, the Spirit, is not just some sort of force. The Holy Spirit is not God's goodwill or just the power of God that's given to you for you to do all sorts of different things. The Holy Spirit is God. He's a third person of the Trinity. There's God the Father, There's God the Son, and there's God the Holy Spirit. They are all God. They are all one in the same, and yet they're different in that they serve different purposes, and their mission and their calling is different, but they are all God, fully God. He was present during the creation of everything, and the scripture itself comes from the influence of this individual who is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God showed up to different people all throughout time and helped them to record in their own language and in their own way and even in their own words what was the intention and the design of God for them to write. He did it in a perfect and a unique way. Literally, when you pick up the scriptures, what you have is the inspiration of the Spirit of God himself. And he came to help us. He's the one Jesus said, I gotta go so I can send you this person to help you. And he's worthy of worship. Now the church isn't centered around the Holy Spirit. The church is centered around Jesus Christ. But Jesus sent the Spirit to be our helper. He is an individual that loves you deeply, convicts of sin, and calls us to God himself. Now when I grew up, and I was in Sunday school, which was what we did usually before church or after church, and it was this whole thing. We would see pictures often about Pentecost. It looked something like this, where all of the people that gathered there at Pentecost, all of a sudden they had like poof, a little candle that popped up over their head, and that meant that the Holy Spirit was there. Well, I don't think that's actually exactly what it looked like. I think that there was something dramatic enough that everybody was amazed when they saw whatever was going on. But there was also something very, very special that happened. Look at this. In Exodus chapter 40, um, the text describes what Moses said the people were supposed to do to worship God. They would take what was called a tabernacle, and and they would set up basically this tent structure, and that is where God would come, and the people would surround the tabernacle. But look what Exodus and then the book of Numbers says. The cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle during the day, and at night, fire glowed inside the 
cloud so that the whole family of Israel could see it. This continued throughout all of their journeys. Then in Numbers, it says, on the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered it. But from evening until morning, the cloud over the tabernacle looked like a pillar of fire. Why? Because the fire over the tabernacle represented the presence of God himself. Everybody knew that's where God is. And so what happened at Pentecost? Every believer was ushered into the presence of God himself when the Holy Spirit came. And to this day, those that are believers in Jesus for salvation are given the gift of the Spirit of God, meaning we are in the very presence of the Almighty God himself. Not because we go somewhere, not because we go to church or to a temple or to wherever, but because God himself came to us. And Peter realized what was going on because he looked back at the prophet Joel, who gave his prophecies to the Hebrew people. And Joel said this, and and Peter recites him. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike. And the people heard this in their own language, remember, and everybody understood what was being said. And those who believe what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. The believers formed a community. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. In other words, the church was born. This is the roots of why we are here today. And Jesus described this moment by saying he was sending us a helper. Look what he said. This is John 14 again. We read this earlier. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And the word helper that Jesus used was parakletos which meant something very, very specific. It meant helper, counselor, advocate, encourager, mediator. All descriptions of who the Spirit of God that lives with inside of us as followers of Jesus, all descriptions of who he is. Look what Jesus said. This is really extraordinary, kind of messes with my theology a little bit because I don't understand how this is possible. Nevertheless, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus said, it's better that I leave. And it's like, how could it possibly be better that God himself in human flesh is on the earth with us, talking to us. How could it be better that he's gone? But he was convinced, Jesus himself was convinced, no, no, you don't get it, it's better that I go. And let's look at the effect of that. When the spirit of God came, when the helper came, there went from being about 100 to 120 followers of Jesus waiting in Jerusalem. On day number one 
of the Spirit who helps us coming. 3,000 people are now followers of Jesus. Day number one, God in human flesh was here on earth for three years ministering, and there was about 120 people. But day one of the Spirit, there's 3,000. This is extraordinary. And again, it blows my mind that that's possible, but it is. And Jesus said, I knew that. I knew that's where we were going with this. That's why I had to come, and now I got to go so I could send him to you. And the question we asked at the beginning, what does God helping us mean? And I believe it means that we have been given the power of the Holy Spirit. That every single one of us, if we have believed in Jesus for salvation, that we have been given the power of God himself to be with us every single moment in our unique situations, in our own unique sorts of ways. Because we're all in a different phase of life. We're all going through different things. But look at just some of what the Spirit of God who is within us, look how the Scripture describes what His ministry is to us. He helps us to know truth and to pray, to remember Scripture all the promises of Scripture, all the truths of Scripture, all the things that God says we need to be living like, all of the different complexities of it, the Spirit of God helps bring it to our heart and bring it to life. Helps us to know God's love. We receive special gifts from the Spirit Himself, unique gifts to serve the rest of the church, to serve the world around us. Helps us to become Christ-like, He secures our salvation. He helps us to witness to others, to spread the good news. He helps us to have unity. Even when our relationships are broken apart, he says, no, 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 I'm gonna bring you together. I'm gonna make sure that this is restored. He has an extraordinary ministry and he is how we receive help from God. I told you a little bit of the story of Eric Little before. And the, the 1980s movie Chariots of Fire kind of cuts off at the end of his story with winning the Olympic gold medal. But Eric said something that I think is wonderful. He said this, it has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I have been a young lad, I have had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris. And this race ends when God gives out the medals. Eric retired from professional athletics in 1924 after the Paris Games. And he decided to go back to China where his parents were and to serve in full-time missions work. He was married. He had a few kids. World War II rolls around and basically Scotland says, you got to get out of China. It's an unsafe place to be. But he says, no way. I'm going even further in and I'm going to serve even more people. He did send his wife, his pregnant wife at the time and his kiddos away, but he stayed there. He went and relieved his brother who was doing missions work as a doctor because he had gotten sick. So he sent him home. And then World War II comes around and Eric Little died in an internment camp under Japanese oppression where they had killed 22 million people. But till the very, very end, those survivors of the internment camp said that knowing Eric was like knowing a saint himself, if that's even possible. He remained optimistic and joyful and passionately told people about the Lord. And he did all of that because he knew 
just like he demonstrated in the Olympics, that God was with him and helped him all along the way. Every step of the way, it was the spirit of God within him that gave him power. And he knew there was a bigger game at play. And Jesus said in John 15, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. I just want to tell you this this morning. As followers of Jesus and as a church, you have the Holy Spirit. And whatever situation you find yourself in, there's unique complexities to it. I get that. And we always feel like we're the exception to everybody else's rule. But however you find yourself, the Spirit of God within you will help you every single step along the way. Specifically, I think some of the things that he helps us to remember Jesus' words is that God is an unchanging redeemer. That there is no situation where we are so far gone or it is so far gone that God isn't able to turn it for good. That he's our unchanging deliverer. That whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, even though we might not be delivered in the way it seems like we want to be, that God will deliver us because he is faithful. The spirit of God impresses that upon our hearts and helps us to understand the truth of the scripture. That God is an unchanging promise keeper. Jesus said, he'll bring to your remembrance all of my words. And God is an unchanging promise keeper. And we have all of the scriptures to tell us all the things that have been promised to us as followers of Jesus, as sons and daughters of God. And the Spirit brings that to our heart and our mind and comforts us with it and guides us and leads us with it. And that He is an unchanging helper. You're never alone. No matter what happens, no matter where you are, you are never, ever, ever alone. God is there to help you. So what does it mean that God helps us? It means that He's given us His Spirit to guide and to lead us and to bring about all of the unique ways that God wants to work through our life and fulfill his promises in our life. And so I want to pray for just a moment. I'm going to have the worship team come up as we have finished this series, Unchanging God. And I would like us to, as we pray, to think about all of these different things, to talk with the Spirit of God, to say, Spirit within me, what are you trying to impress on my heart? How do you want me to understand that you're our Redeemer and Deliverer, that you're our Promise Keeper? And to ask God, what are the things that you want to bring to my mind? How do you want to help me? How are you going to help me with my marriage or my work or whatever it might be that right now you know I need God's help in this area of my life? So let's pray and then we are actually going to sing about this power of the Spirit and His ministry and what He does for us as His followers. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you are our unchanging helper. Thank you. I pray you'd impress upon us even right now that you are right beside us. You are within us. You're here to help us. And we're never so far gone and we're never so trapped and we're never so discouraged that you can't bring us through. 